You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contained threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. Disinformation and hacktivism in the war between Hamas and Israel. Kilnet and the IT Army of Ukraine say they'll follow ICRC guidelines. The current state of DPRK cyber operations. The grailing cyber espionage group is active against Taiwan. A Magecart campaign abuses 404 pages. 23andMe suffers a breach. Voter records in Washington, D.C. have been compromised. In our Solution Spotlight, Simone Petrella speaks with Raytheon's John Check about supporting and shaping the next generation of the cyber workforce. Grady Summers from SailPoint outlines the importance of organizations managing and protecting access to critical data. And a look at CISO's willingness to pay ransom. I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire Intel Briefing for Tuesday, October 10th, 2023. Before we begin, a quick thanks to Trey Hester for manning the mic while I was away last week. I was a guest and keynote speaker at the CyberCon conference in Bismarck, North Dakota. We'll have insights from that conference in the coming days. Moving on, the war that intensified Saturday with major attacks into Israel by Hamas has been accompanied by extensive disinformation campaigns, some of them directed by authorities, but much of it also spontaneously posted, especially in X, the platform formerly known as Twitter, but in other platforms as well. TikTok and Telegram have been prominent among those other platforms. On TikTok, footage from video games has been presented as video of Israeli airstrikes. And on Telegram, unverified and often false claims of successful cyber attacks have proliferated. But Twitter seems to have been particularly receptive to disinformation, in part because the sale of blue checks has eroded filters that media outlets had once imperfectly but usefully provided. It's now more difficult to determine what reports originate from organizations that vet their reporting. X has also tended to promote inflammatory false information, 
amplifying it because such content generates engagement, and the platform's influencer culture gives careless influencers outsized clout with users. By the register's count, at least 15 known cybercriminal, ransomware, and hacktivist groups have announced their active participation in disruptive attacks targeting institutions in Israel and Palestine. International supporters of both parties to the conflict are also coming under cyber attack. Some of the groups have long been aligned with Hamas, others with Israel, and still others are ramping up operations against a long-term enemy whose support for Israel or Hamas serves as either pretext or provocation. While most of the activity has been familiar DDoS or nuisance-level defacement, some of it has targeted infrastructure, Security Week reports, especially electrical power distribution and military command and control. It seems the attempts against infrastructure and C2 have so far had limited effect. According to HackRead, one pro-Hamas group, Anon Ghost, seems to have been able to exploit a vulnerability in the Israeli Red Alert Civil Defense app to transmit false warnings of missile strikes. That particular action has also been claimed by the Russian hacktivist auxiliary Anonymous Sudan. U.S. NSA Cybersecurity Director Rob Joyce commented yesterday that the cyber phases of the war have so far been largely confined to nuisance-level hacktivists. The Wall Street Journal quotes Joyce as saying, but we're not yet seeing real nation-state malicious actors. Israel has taken action against Hamas funding, seizing Hamas-linked Binance cryptocurrency accounts, financial magnates reports, Israel has also worked with British authorities to freeze at least one Barclays account linked to Hamas fundraising. Among the hacktivist groups who've rallied to support Hamas in its current attack against Israel are two familiar Russian auxiliaries, Kilnet and, as we've seen, Anonymous Sudan. When Israeli government service sites were knocked offline over the weekend, Kilnet claimed credit, stating, Israeli government, you are responsible for this bloodshed. Back in 2022, you supported the terrorist regime in Ukraine. That's according to a Killnet Telegram post cited by Cyber News. It goes on to say, You betrayed Russia. Today, Killnet officially informs you of this. All government systems of Israel will be subject to our attacks. The BBC reports that prominent and opposing hacktivist auxiliaries stated over the weekend that they intended to abide by the guidelines officials of the International Committee of the Red Cross recommended last week. Russia's Kilnet and the IT Army of Ukraine both said that they intended to follow the rules that would clarify the extension of international humanitarian law to activities in cyberspace. The guidelines aim principally at protecting civilians and civilian infrastructure from harm. How serious the hacktivist auxiliaries are about this is unclear. North Korea has recently been active against blockchain and decentralized finance targets, it was reported at the end of last week. Mixin Network, which facilitates blockchain's transactions, disclosed losses amounting to a bit less than $150 million in a late September attack. U.S. Deputy National Security Advisor for Cyber and Emerging Technology Ann Neuberger told Bloomberg that the tradecraft looked like the DPRKs. Mandiant this morning published its assessment of the current organization and conduct of North Korean offensive cyber operations. 
It sees an evolution in both complexity and cooperation as Pyongyang continues to run both espionage and financial crime. Attribution of operations to specific North Korean groups is increasingly muddled as those groups share tools and targets and collaborate temporarily. Some of the groups are isolated from the central authority and are self-funding through financial crime even as they remain aligned with North Korean goals. The attack techniques are more adaptable than they've been in the past, and the days of regarding all North Korean activity as the work of the Lazarus Group are now over, according to Mandiant. The Symantec Threat Hunter team this morning described what it characterizes as a hitherto unknown advanced persistent threat, Grayling, which conducted cyber espionage against Taiwan between February and May of this year. Its operations are marked by a distinctive side-loading technique, and its targets have tended to be in the manufacturing, IT, and biomedical sectors. While Taiwan has been Grayling's principal area of interest, the group may also have prospected targets in the Pacific, in Vietnam, and in the United States. There's no attribution, but Symantec blandly points out that whoever's running the APT has strategic interest in Taiwan. If you're like the rest of us, you probably aren't in the habit of close-reading 404 error pages, but they're now worth a little attention. Researchers at Akamai have discovered a Magecart web skimming campaign that's been targeting Magento and WooCommerce sites for the past few weeks. The researchers note... Magecart attacks typically begin by exploiting the vulnerabilities in the targeted websites or by infecting the third-party services that these websites are using. In this campaign, all the victim websites we detected were directly exploited, as the malicious code snippet was injected into one of their first-party resources. In some instances, the malicious code was inserted into the HTML pages. In other cases, it was concealed within one of the first-party scripts, that was loaded as part of the website. So do check your 404 error pages and make sure they haven't been maliciously altered. A threat actor is selling data belonging to nearly 1 million customers of DNA testing company 23andMe, bleeping computer reports. The threat actor is selling the information for $1,000 per 100 profiles or $100,000 for 100,000 profiles. Data Economy notes that the database is titled Ashkenazi DNA Data of Celebrities. The database is focused on individuals with Ashkenazi Jewish ancestry, and while it's unclear that any of them are celebrities, the reference lands an unpleasant suggestion of anti-Semitic animus to the theft. 23andMe thinks the attack was carried out by credential stuffing, the attackers took credentials obtained in other breaches of other online services and used them to access accounts whose owners had recycled those credentials. CyberScoop reports that a threat actor breached Washington, D.C.'s local election authority and accessed 600,000 lines of voter data, which included the last four digits of voters' social security numbers, driver's license numbers, and home addresses. The threat actor is offering the data for sale on a criminal forum. The District of Columbia Board of Elections said in a statement, DCBOE continues to assess the full extent of the breach, identify vulnerabilities, and take appropriate measures to secure voter data and systems. 
This remains an active investigation, and DCBOE will release additional information as it becomes available. Splunk has published a report looking at how chief information security officers are dealing with threats, finding that 96% of the surveyed CISOs said their organizations sustained a ransomware attack in the past year. 83% of these respondents said they paid the ransom. The report says the most significant number paid somewhere between $25,000 to $99,000, while more than half of respondents paid more than $100,000. A stunning 9% of respondents paid $1 million or more. The researchers add, of those who paid, 18% paid the ransom directly, 37% paid through cyber insurance, and 28% paid through a third party. And finally, today is Patch Tuesday. Companies are in the process of rolling out their fixes and mitigations, so keep your eyes open, and as CISA would say, apply updates per vendor instructions. Coming up after the break, Simone Petrella speaks with Raytheon's John Check about supporting and shaping the next generation of the cyber workforce. Grady Summers from SailPoint outlines the importance of organizations managing and protecting access to critical data. Stay with us. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Grady Summers is Executive Vice President of Product at SailPoint, a company that provides unified identity security. 
In this sponsored Industry Voices segment, we discuss the importance of organizations managing and protecting access to critical data. The big picture is, you know, you'll see these studies, we've all seen them, that 80-90% of enterprise data is unstructured, right? It's the stuff that's not in your, your Snowflake or your databases, and we're talking about everything from Word documents and PowerPoint and Excel to, you know, common delimited files and IoT data, right? So it really runs the gamut. But the funny thing is, if you look over the last 20 years, and I've been in this industry for a long time, it's weird how like solutions kind of grow up to address problems and become little islands or points. What I mean is, you know, we have a robust industry around uh, governing access to applications, your, your SAP or your Oracle or your Zoom or your Slack. But then we use a totally different set of tools to look at the unstructured data. And, you know, from, from our perspective, it's crazy that you would do these on two completely separate islands that rarely, if ever, talk. Why wouldn't you think about access through the lens of identity for all of your data that matters to you as an enterprise? And that's where we find ourselves today. And what is it that makes that data, and, and I suppose specifically the unstructured data, so challenging to deal with? It's the $64,000 question, so to speak, and uh, why we've been working on this problem so hard at SailPoint. One, it can be tough to know what's in there. You know, if it's a customer marketing database, you know it's got customer data in there. Second is it's tough to assign ownership. Again, you take that example of customer database or an ERP or a CRM, you know that you've got a defined business leader who's responsible for that system. And they can dictate the controls that are put in place over it and, and the types of access that you allow. And the third thing that makes it really hard is it's, it's tough to know where unstructured data is. Uh, whereas, you know, again, with a big ERP system, you know, okay, look, it's all, it's all right here uh, within the boundaries of the system. So you take those three things, you know, it can be tough to classify. It can be hard to know exactly where it is because by its very nature, unstructured data you know, anybody can create it, anybody can share it, anybody can change access to it. And then it's tough to really know who owns it and who's responsible for it. I think those three create this perfect storm where enterprises just don't know where their, what their crown jewels are. They don't know where it is. They don't know who owns it. And they don't know who has access to it. You know, earlier today, I was having a conversation with someone who's in the critical infrastructure space. And they, we were talking about the importance of taking an inventory of your assets. And in this case, we're talking about, you know, physical assets, machines, computers, and those sorts of things. Is it similar to what we're talking about here that people need a window into their data itself so they can have visibility, know what they've got? Yeah, it absolutely starts with that. And you know, it's funny that you mentioned talking to someone and the same approach to physical assets. And I would remark, I know you've been in this space a long time too, uh, Dave. It seems like you know, history repeats itself and cybersecurity tends to repeat itself. And with all these things, you know, whether you're trying to protect, you know, unstructured data or structured data or protect against, uh, you know, a, a malware or protect against breaches, it's like, what do you have? What's your policy? And are you enforcing that policy? It like always comes down to those three. And so, yeah, for unstructured data, you know, we have to make it easier for customers to assess what they have. And that's gotten so much harder now with, you know, your awesome file sharing and collaboration platforms like a OneDrive or Dropbox or Box, um, because suddenly that data just can proliferate outside the bounds of your, your enterprise in a way it never could before. So got to make it easy to understand what you have, but I'd say that's the first step, you know, and then you got to start saying, well, who has access, who should have access to it, and, and what is it? Well, can we go down that roadmap together here? I mean, for, for an organization who's looking to get started on this journey, where do they begin? Yeah, so. Um, you know, what we've really endeavored to do is to t walk a customer through that journey with, uh, with our SailPoint uh, identity security platform. And so it starts with, hey, let's, let's start to point it so we can start to look at your data stores that, that you know about. 
Um, and we'll continue to kind of pull the thread on that and follow links and, and understand where do you have unstructured data in the enterprise. And so when I say most companies don't know where it is, you know, they generally know, look, it's on this, this file store, this, this NAS system, it's in OneDrive, it's in Dropbox, it's in G Suite. Um, so you take, you know, a dozen or so starting points like that and you get pretty good coverage. And so I'd say that's the first step is now we know, okay, what is our data? And then, of course, you would use uh, technology like SailPoint's data access security to not only discover it, but then classify it. So now you know where it is. Now you know what you've got out there. And when we're talking about classification, what, what, what does that entail? Yeah, so classification is um, we're looking at, at uh, the data. And, uh, you know, as I'm sure you know, it's evolved so much uh, from, from when I started to work with data classification technologies. We're now deploying uh, artificial intelligence to kind of understand the entities that are in a document, how they relate to each other, and develop this kind of uh, concept of, of uh, how, how data relates to its, each other or how individual entities relate to each other across different data stores, right? So it doesn't all have to be in one document. Uh, and of course, we do things like, you know, uh, point old school OCR to look into images, right? So you make sure that all the images and the PDF documents all properly get classified. So it's come a long way. I'd say like uh, the rest of SailPoint technologies, we deploy the, the latest machine learning to make sure that no stone is unturned and we really understand what's out there. What is the other side of this journey like? I mean, when, once someone has this in place and it's running effectively, how does that affect the organization? Big picture, you know, the first step, we walk down the path that you and I just talked about. An organization should have, um, you know, a, a great inventory of what they have and the, the, the profiles or the access to that data should be locked down only to those who need it. So I think that's the point at which an organization can catch their breath. But as we look at toward an optimizer, how do we optimize that longer term? Um, we're really excited to be taking some of the AI technology that we have built over the years to analyze um, access patterns and, and uh, roles and, and entitlements for every kind of access and apply that to unstructured data. So what I mean is we can start to look and say, all right, you think you've cleaned everything up. We just found a really weird outlier. You know, uh, Grady's the only person in his organization that has access to this particular data about M&A, for example. So we can spot these unusual outliers and then we want to make sure we keep that stuff tight. And so we have um, some neat forensic capability where we can constantly monitor changes in access to unstructured documents. And um, we're the only ones who, who, who the, the we're aware of that do it like this. So we can look at every little change that we can alert an end user if something starts to fall out of bounds. So, hey, you had a pretty clean setup, but you just opened up this document to a completely different group or different role or to the public. Uh, and you probably shouldn't given its classification. So it's a really neat way to keep things in control. That's Grady Summers, Executive Vice President of Product at SailPoint. In an ongoing series we call Solutions Spotlight, we look at some of the persistent workforce challenges facing folks in cybersecurity. In today's edition, N2K President Simone Petrella speaks with Raytheon's Executive Director of Cyber Protection Solutions, John Check, on his organization's efforts to shape and support the next generation. Like everybody else, we were struggling to fill some cybersecurity roles. So we said, okay, Raytheon manufactures things, let's manufacture talent. That's a great idea, right? Everybody's talked about cyber training, but really put an extreme focus on it to ensure that we were getting people that are living the work every day on certain missions and then training people to be able to be effective on those missions. The way we're measuring that is really, okay, 
those people, when they join the teams, are they effective in their roles? And are we getting the customer satisfaction we'd expect for that person really contributing to the missions that we're supporting? And that's one of the key ways we we focus on from a customer-facing metric. From a Raytheon, it's the, okay, we have reduced the amount of open positions we have. We are filling the roles that our customers are expecting us to. And that's a very tangible way to measure the success of we're filling the open positions, right? Versus looking for that perfect candidate that's never going to show up with all those skills we want. We're taking the initiative to train them. And it's a real investment by us, typically, like I said, up to maybe 16 weeks. Yeah. Well, and do you have any background into what was the impetus or the kind of catalyzing event that kind of made Raytheon think about taking this kind of manufacturer talent perspective. And I asked the question because I've been in this space for a while myself, and I'd say one of the biggest challenges we have is having organizations step up and say, how do we think about this strategically as a team, as opposed to waiting for talent to kind of get created externally and then we bring them in? So was there a watershed moment that made, you know, the organization realize we need to really invest in this? Well, I'd say it was during the the pandemic is really, I think, what what really changed the dynamic of how you're going to hire, who you're going to hire, and, and how you can really interact with potential teammates or talent that you want to bring on board, right? Before then, you could go to different events, Black Hat, DEF CON, whatever, and you can have all, you meet with individuals and talk about what you do and you know, can do a material almost like a hiring event. That was all lost, right, during that time period. And it became very hard to uncover the people that really you've got exciting roles for them potentially, but it's really hard to connect. So part of the, the attack we took initially was really training uh, internal folks, people that are already on board to say, okay, this person already has these skills. They have the right clearances required for this type of work. Let's get them into the training curriculum that will tailor, you know, be very specific to their needs and really ensure that they have those skills. So we really started more with our internal folks and then really migrated to more of a, okay, we're going to hire external candidates and train them up because with the next with an internal person you already understand where they are in their their maturity of their 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 talent level and the skills that they have whereas an external person it's much harder to gauge that no matter how thorough or how much of a me a role based assessment you do it's very difficult when it's an external candidate yeah so how are you how is Raytheon thinking about those team skills that are needed to execute on these job roles that are in demand not only internally but from your own customers. Well, I mean, there's the, it's the, it ultimately comes down to the soft skills for us, right? Which typically is, is somebody a continuous learner, right? Are they going to, that's what it requires. You can't be afraid to fail. You got to be able to somebody's go, okay, I'm going to try to learn a new skill. It's going to be difficult. I'm going to get frustrated, but I'm going to keep per- persevering. And really, you know, that perseverance trait helps, you know, in all aspects of cybersecurity. Cause that's what one of the things we do is when you're going after, see, there's a new threat that's emerged. Doing the forensics to figure, okay, what's happening? How did this happen? Who's doing it? How do we stop it? What's the remediation? All those things come into somebody. You have to be very, you have, to be a, you have to a lot of perseverance to get through that process because it can be very frustrating with a, a lot of maybe dead ends or long nights and other activities where it takes the right mindset as well. So we really we look for people that have those those skills. Somebody that's inquisitive, right? They always are asking why. Well, why why does it work this way? What could we do differently? All this, the, the soft skills really lead to, because what we found is you have somebody that has those committed soft skills, they can learn any content that's brought to them, typically. They, if they have those, those the, the desire to do it, they're going to learn, be effective, and be a very effective teammate on whatever mission they are going towards. 
Switching gears just slightly, knowing that Raytheon certainly has been doing quite a bit, both in the public sector as well as the private, what are some of the ways that you think about how there can be better collaboration between the public and the private sector as we talk about how to solve this talent gap problem beyond what we're even seeing in individual organizations? Well, the way I really think the talent problem is, has three key aspects with a lot of sides, you know, spokes to it. So the first thing is we got to solve the quantity problem. Got to remove artificial barriers of entry to people that want to join the cyber fight. And also people that are even thinking about it, giving them the awareness that, hey, that sounds interesting. And maybe I'd want to join doing that. Two is we talked about it already. Once you have that, you got to create the quality, right? You got to build a quality workforce when that quantity you're bringing in. And the third is you got to support them once they've reached that goal, which that gets to the, the aspects around, okay, the continuous training, tailored role-based training that they will need, but also all those soft things of avoiding burnout, of ensuring people's voices are heard. When they see something, they, they provide a suggestion, people follow up on it. And ensuring that the organization as a whole makes it a priority to do all those things. So it's easy to say there's a cybersecurity problem and we don't have enough people, but are people taking an active role? And that's what I'd like to think that we are taking an active role, uh, you know, participating in, in all the events that we can, right? With, from a STEM perspective with NCCDC and U.S. Cyber Games and other events, as well as having our own internal lab to train people, as well as trying to remove those barriers on our job postings and not say, thou shall have, you know, X number of, you know, I have a four-year degree with this type of coursework, with this GPA, with these certifications, and all those things that are, are really a wish list and really trying to say, if you have these skills and you're determined to do these types of things, we can train you. And that's really a, a real mind shift for us as well, because you know, Raytheon's a, a, a company of engineers and we take engineering very serious, but we recognize we can't do it by the traditional pathways alone. We have to open that, that aperture and not have that artificial limiting of potential candidates that can join the workforce. John, thank you so much for, for joining us today and I appreciate the time. Thanks, Simone. It's been, it's been great. I love this conversation. That's Raytheon's John Check speaking with our own Simone Petrella. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. We'd love to know what you think of this podcast. You can email us at cyberwire at n2k.com. Your feedback helps us ensure we're delivering the information and insights that help keep you a step ahead in the rapidly changing world of cybersecurity. 
We're privileged that N2K and podcasts like The Cyberwire are part of the daily intelligence routine of many of the most influential leaders and operators in the public and private sector, as well as the critical security teams supporting the Fortune 500 and many of the world's preeminent intelligence and law enforcement agencies. N2K Strategic Workforce Intelligence optimizes the value of your biggest investment, your people. We make you smarter about your team while making your team smarter. Learn more at n2k.com. This episode was produced by Liz Irvin and senior producer Jennifer Iben. Our mixer is Trey Hester with original music by Elliot Peltzman. The show was written by our editorial staff. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Rick here. At N2K Cyberwire, we're dedicated to continuously improving the quality of the news and commentary on our network. That's why we're inviting you to participate in our 2024 audience survey. It only takes a few minutes and your feedback is invaluable. Plus, you'll have the chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card as a thank you for your time. Head on over to cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey to share your feedback now. And now a word from our sponsor, SpyCloud, the leader in operationalizing cybercrime analytics. Traditional threat intelligence is a thing of the past. Cyber criminals are stealing vast amounts of credentials, session cookies, and financial data every day, and it's hard to keep up. SpyCloud is the trusted partner businesses turn to to fully understand their darknet exposure risk and neutralize threats before it's too late. SpyCloud alerts your organization as soon as an employee or customer's data appears on the darknet, so you can act faster than bad actors to prevent cyber attacks like ransomware, session hijacking, account takeover, and online fraud. With insights from the industry's largest repository of recaptured data, protect the digital identities and systems most important to your business. Get your free corporate darknet exposure report at spycloud.com cyberwire and see what information criminals have in their hands today. That's spycloud.com cyberwire.